Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White, your host today on the Arts Hour. I'm also the executive director for your Mississippi Arts Commission. In this special broadcast today, we listen again to my 2012 interview with Jim Dollarhide, the legendary Mississippi filmmaker who died in a house fire in March of 2016. In the first part of the conversation, I asked Jim about how his career started. Well, it started in a dark room. Uh, to be specific, it's my, my dad was an amateur photographer. Uh-huh. And in junior high school, he uh, gently enlisted me to be his darkroom assistant. Hmm. Uh, and, of course, back then, uh, this is, you know, <laughs> ages before digital, uh, there was an enlarger. Right. And you projected your negative down on an easel, which had silver-based photographic paper. And then you put the uh, – you had the, the kind of the red lamp on. Right. And you put the paper in developer. And you saw the image come alive. It developed before your eyes. The magic. And, I mean, I have a, a collective memory of many images uh, working in my dad's dark room. But when I saw that first image, I was hooked. It, there was something about seeing that image come alive. Um, then later... Um, I mean, within a year or two, I had a paper route, and I worked a weekend job, and I, within a year or two, I had bought a Nikon camera. Well, you started with the best. So the, the images started becoming my images, uh-huh. um, and to see an image through the camera and then go into a photographic darkroom and see that image come alive was just mesmerizing to me. And I, I, I'm an, I knew when I was 15 years old what I was going to do with my life. Wow. I didn't. <laughs> now, there's been a few uh, curves here and there, uh, so, twist in the road. But Right. Now, you uh, you grew up in Jackson? Uh, born in Greenwood. Greenwood. Uh, my family moved to Jackson when I was two. So uh, I grew up in the Broadmoor section uh, of North Jackson. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was a school band man at Bailey Junior High and then later at Murrah. And then later uh, in his retiring years, he was the manager of the Jackson Symphony. But but this photography was his was his hobby? He was an amateur photographer. Uh-huh, right. Uh, actually, somebody on Facebook recently told me that my dad was one of the founders of the Jackson Photography Club oh, back okay. in the early 50s. And that's something about my dad I didn't know. Cool. Um, while my my father had many gifts, uh, uh, creative photography was not one of them. Gotcha. Uh, he he mainly uh, uh, took snapshots of the family, and I, and I have uh, Kodachrome and Ektachrome thirty five millimeter transparencies of our family going back uh, before I was born. And then black and white negatives that I've located, and I'm in the process of scanning of my family going back to, uh, you know, when my mom and dad got married. Uh-huh. So he was uh, a band director, 
and also later associated with the symphony. Was he also a musician? Uh, you know, every great band man is a musician. Right. And uh, you, you're not a great band man unless you can play all the instruments in the orchestra. And so he played them all. Yeah. And you? You ever dabble in music? Well, and... Um, you know, I was uh, browbeat into it. You know, <laughs> like, like being the photographer's assistant, <laughs> right? Um, exactly. Uh, there was no question about it whether or not I was going to be in the school band, right? Um, and in the tenth grade at Murrah, uh, the yearbook editor, uh, excuse me, sponsor, mm-hmm. uh, was a lovely lady who is still around, I think, B. Donnelly, and she came in the band room one day and said, uh, "Roger, uh, I need to make an announcement." And Roger she, being your father. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, she said, our school photographer has moved to Alabama, and we need a school photographer. Now, imagine me at this point. I've already been through three years of junior high band, yeah. and I was not a very good baritone horn player. <laughs> uh, the genes skipped me. Um, so I'm under my dad's thumb. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went. I looked at my dad, and he kind of cut his eyes at me like, okay, and I became the school photographer. That was and, the segue. Yep, that was it. From, from I put, performance. I put uh, down the baritone <laughs> horn and picked up a Nikon. So uh, then you went off to college. Uh, where did you attend college? Well, actually, you know, I dropped out of high school in okay. 1970 in the middle of the desegregation split. Right. Uh, not because I had any... Uh, racist views or anything, but uh, nor did my family, but because uh, the teachers at Murrah let me skip class, hmm. and I had not studied. I was not a good student, and I never went to class. I was always photographing you something. You were busy with your, um, your photography duties. fact was I had a master key to the building, and I would go in the principal's office and get the class dismissal slips, and the principal, a guy named James Merritt, had a rubber stamp in his desk with his name on it. Uh-huh. I would take a whole pad of class dismissal <laughs> slips and stamp the whole pad. And I'd show up at my first class and turn in a class dismissal slip. Then I would go down to a standard photo company on Capitol Street mm-hmm. and hang out with the real photographers. Ah, your real and education. I, so um, I knew that if I had – they were going to move me to Callaway High School. Right. And I knew if I went over there, I would fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I talked my dad into letting me uh, – drop out of school, and I was going to finish with correspondence courses. And? Uh, my draft number came up. It's the height of the Vietnam War, right. and uh, my draft number was number seven. Mm-mm. So I joined the Army. Um, and the Army Photo Corps, uh, surprisingly, is one of the best places, uh, is, uh, was, and continues to be one of the best places on Earth to uh, receive photographic training. Hmm. And... Uh, so I got, uh, I joined the Army to get in the photo corps, and I got to basic training, and they said, um, Private Dollarhide, the photo corps is full. Uh-oh. You have been reassigned to camera repair school. <laughs> uh, so um, as it turned out, I had braces on. They let me out of the Army on a temporary medical discharge. They made a mistake and gave me a permanent 4F. Goodness. Uh, so I skipped right past the Vietnam War. Um, you dropped out of high school, and now you've dropped out of the Army. And while I was in the Army, uh, I got a GED, and I went and did a little while at Heinz Junior uh-huh. College, Good. Uh, where I met my very lovely ex-wife, Catherine. Um, 
And uh, that's you know, junior colleges are good for a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, right. I think that's probably the only thing I did of merit at, at Hines Junior College, where I was also the school photographer. Of course, you were. Um, but you know, um, so why do I have in my mind that you were down at Southern in in the film? School? Maybe because every one of my employees for the last thirty, forty years, uh, come out of all there. my proteges, all came through Southern. But not you. But not me. Huh. You were sort of self-trained and learned on the job, and uh, you know, I'm um, in uh, nineteen seventy-one. Sergio Fernandez was doing uh, a. Uh, radio show on ZZ, what was ZZQ FM. Right. And they brought back the old uh, Lamar Cranston, The Shadow. Oh, The Shadow series. knows. And they wanted to make a TV spot to promote it. And uh, so they, uh, WAPT uh, gave Sergio a 16-millimeter film camera and said, well, you can shoot your own. Wow. Because he had been through film school. Right, he'd gone down to Southern. And uh, he, he called me up and said, I have no clue what to do. Come help me. And um, so we went out in the woods with a, a scantily clad woman. Oh, my goodness. And had her run through the woods. <laughs> and um, I saw that image through the camera. Uh-huh. And, and back then, only the only the cameraman could see the image. Right. There, there were no video no monitors. monitors. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we... Went and had the film developed, and we took it up to Sergio's apartment where he had tie-dye sheets covering the windows. <laughs> Probably still does. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we put up a, the film on the projector, you know, the original film that ran through the camera and turned out the lights. And when I saw that image, that moving image that I had seen in the eyepiece, right. I, I said, to hell with these, these still images. Yeah. I want moving images. I want action. And uh, so that's how I became a cinematographer as opposed to a photographer. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about Sergio. You mentioned him just to say that Sergio Fernandez, who owns and operates Fernandez Creative Services, uh, is a musician, plays with these days and a bunch of other bands, a good friend of yours and mine. But uh, uh, but also he was a DJ for years on ZZQ. Now, did you have any relationship with ZZQ other than just – Friends with Sergio. I mean, they were- I was uh, close friends with both Sergio and the late Dave Adcock. Da- David and, Adcock. Uh, going back to when it was uh, WJDX FM, mm-hmm. uh, and actually uh, just came across a a photograph that I took of Sergio in the control room upstairs at the WLBT facilities, which I took in early 1970. Wow. Uh, maybe no, it would be late 1970. But you never worked as a radio. I, ne- I never worked in radio. DJ. No, you went straight to film. And your first uh, camera, the uh, your your movie camera, as it were. How did how did you? What was your first piece of equipment that took you from still to to, to movie? I I left Hines Junior College, and I uh, I knew I wanted to do filmmaking uh-huh. um, I wanted to do cinematography right. that's what I knew at that point um, and the only place in Jackson that at that time that uh, 
really offered an opportunity for me was a company called Jasper Ewing and Sons. Yeah, on State Street. So yeah, it was an uh, audiovisual supply company. Right. And I I talked Mr. Ewing into uh, starting a production department. Um, and the first job we got was the Jackson State football playbacks. And wow. Walter Payton was a senior. And the next thing I knew, I was shooting for NFL films and ABC and NBC and NCAA, and that's how I started. Sports photographer. That's it. You're listening to a special rebroadcast of a 2012 Arts Hour interview with Mississippi filmmaker Jim Dollarhide, who died in a house fire in March of 2016. Hi, I'm Malcolm White. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. For access to more conversations with creative Mississippians, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. I'm Malcolm White, and today on the Mississippi Arts Hour, we're rebroadcasting my 2012 interview with my good friend, Mississippi filmmaker Jim Dollarhide, who was tragically killed in a house fire in 2016. This part of the conversation begins with Jim's memories of Mississippi author Willie Morris. I had some great times with Willie. Uh, he uh, he told me, uh, I think my favorite quotation in the world, uh, he told me, late one night, mm-hmm. and uh, guess what goes on with Willie late, late at night? <laughs> great quotes. Uh, um, he said, Jim, the only thing you'll take to your grave is your memories, unless you write them down. Wow. Write, them, write them down, Jim. This is from a guy who wrote three memoirs, <laughs> Willie Morris, the late, great Willie Morris. So the music that we listened to before the soundtrack uh, music from My Dog Skip uh, was was B.B. King and his iconic Thrill is Gone. And, Jim, you've worked with B.B. for years. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that relationship, how you got connected to him and all of the years of work that you've done, I guess leading up to the culmination of the B.B. King Museum and this last film you did with him. Just talk a little bit about uh, Jim Dollarhide and B.B. King. Uh, well, that's a thrill that's not gone. <laughs> um, it, it, it was one of the greatest thrills of my life. Um, and I still have some ongoing projects with the museum in Indianola. Uh, but I, I met B.B. when I was 20 years old. Uh, I believe that it was the very first Medgar Evers homecoming. Right. And while the homecoming was held in Fayette, uh, 
Charles and BB, that'd be Charles Evers, decided uh, because of BB's stature at the time and they the fact that they wanted to attract white audiences to the homecoming to hold the the concert in Jackson at the Coliseum. Right. Uh, BB had just a couple of years before crossed over to white audiences. Uh, this is in 1972. He was touring the world with the Rolling Stones as the opening act, um, and he, he had, the thrill had gone. Had come out in '67, I think '68 mm-hmm. maybe. Um, so uh, our friend uh, Drake Elder, Bebop uh, Records, Bebop Records, um, was uh, handling the concert for Charles. Uh, and he let my uh, future bride-to-be and a couple of our friends backstage to get an autograph. Uh-huh. And as, as B.B. walked up to us, smiling and sweating because he had just come off the stage, and as he always does, even today, he always asks his fans as he signs an autograph, where are you from and what do you do? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I'm from Greenwood, Mississippi, and I'm a filmmaker. Of course, at that point, I was a wannabe filmmaker. <laughs> Slight exaggeration. Uh, and he went, dollar hot. Now, did your family own a music store in Greenwood? I said, uh, yes, my dad. He said, only place between Memphis and New Orleans I could get real guitar strings. <laughs> and he said, what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> I, said, I looked at Catherine and I said, I don't know. And uh, he said, why don't you come up to Memphis and let's talk about filmmaking in the blues. I guess he just took a liking to me. Uh-huh. Um, I guess, you know, here's, here's a young white kid from Mississippi. Uh, he had New York management at the time. Right. And I, I think he felt like he could trust me. Uh, so we got in our MGB and we drove to, um, and uh, met at the pre-assigned spot at Handy Park on Beale Street. And precisely at 3 o'clock, uh, B.B. pulled up in a purple Cadillac. By himself, no entourage. And we sat there on a park bench, which is still there today, um, and talked about filmmaking. And my what was on my mind was that at the time, um, white and black audiences, they were listening to Motown, um, you know, um, soul music. Right. They weren't. That there there weren't many people listening to the blues, uh-huh. particularly in the in the young black people, uh, and that disturbed BB. So at that point, he, he had decided he wanted to make a film, um, about his life and through his life tell the story of the blues, and um, the year before his New York management had s- s- hired a filmmaker. Uh, from New York and who followed B.B. around the world. And a year had passed and B.B. had never seen any footage from him. Hmm. Um, so he wound up shipping me all of this film. He, he was breaking up with his management in New York. Right. Um, and one of the issues was this film because hmm. B.B. paid for it right. handsomely, probably, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in 1972 dollars. Uh, so, um, you know, we talked for hours, and I don't know, two or three months later, um, 
a, a big uh, Shippers Express truck shows up with a uh, a crate, a wooden crate that was uh, about four feet by four feet by four feet. And I looked on it, and it said B.B. Uh, King Management. And we took it. Uh, we had to get one of these uh, portable forklifts right. to move it into the elevator to take it upstairs. And we had pried it open, and there was hundreds and hundreds of cans of 16-millimeter film. Mm. Uh, and B.B. put me to task to analyze it and report to him, uh, which I did. And it turned out the film was shot by an amateur, it, uh, another wannabe filmmaker. <laughs> um, but this guy had no sense of the craft at all. Mm. Um, and I thought it was worthless. Um, wow. As fate would have it, when we started the museum project, I started digging around trying to find that film. And the last thing I had seen of it is I had sent it to Bill Ferris when he was at Ole Miss. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh at the Center, Center for, for the, the Study of, of Southern Culture. Culture. Um, we decided that would be a good place to vault it. Right. Well, maybe well, you'd given his music collection. Right. There. This all happened about the same time. Right. And, um, you know, meanwhile, Bill had long gone to sure. North Carolina. Well, first, yeah, he went to D.C. and was the chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities and now, the, now North, North Carolina. North Carolina. And, uh, we called Bill, and he, he, you know, claimed no knowledge of it. Uh-huh. Uh, the center had no knowledge of it. Goodness. Uh, so we thought it was lost. And one day I was in B.B.'s uh, manager's office in New York, um, uh, 10th Avenue, at just one block south of Central Park. And I looked down on a shelf, and I saw a can of film, a silver Kodak can, and I recognized the label instantly. It was from Motion Picture Laboratories in Memphis. And the handwriting was from my former assistant, the late Kendall Wilson. Oh, my goodness. And I, I picked this up, and I went, Tina, where did this come from? And she said, oh, there's a big box of uh, film uh, out at Sid Seidenberg's estate. Wow. Um. And we retrieved the film, and we took it uh, back to NFL Films, where I had have had this longstanding right. relationship, um, and they restored it digitally for us. So wow, <laughs> um, long you know big circle there, yeah. And all of that we used a lot of that footage in the museum films, right? But in two thousand five, um, the little groundswell. Uh, in Indianola, they had started out. They wanted, they were thinking they were going to put it in a, uh, the museum in a little storefront, maybe spend a couple of hundred thousand dollars on it. Right. Um, and by this time, it was hovering around ten million and growing. And uh, they had engaged a, a design firm from Washington to design the museum, and they had received funding now. And the first thing they, the design firm says. We need to send a film crew down to Mississippi to document the uh, oral histories or film the the interviews mm-hmm. of BB's living contemporaries, you know, people he grew up with. Right, right. And Alan Hammonds, uh, from uh, the consummate ad man from Greenwood, 
uh, who I've known for 30 years or more, said, wait, 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 wait. Um, we have a filmmaker in Mississippi. Uh, instead of sending down a film crew from Washington, we have a filmmaker in Mississippi who's Oscar-nominated, and he's known B.B. for 35 years. So that got their attention, and uh, they vetted me, mm-hmm. um, and I got the job. Uh, and that started a three-and-a-half-year journey uh, on off and on, of course. Right. Uh, we traveled around the world with B.B. We went to... We filmed his uh, uh, the recording of his last uh, studio CD, which is called One Kind Favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to his club in New York, uh, spent about a week in his home with him in Las Vegas. Um, just And uh, my oldest son, uh, earlier you, you referred to me as your friend Dollar, on a film crew, everybody's got a nickname, uh-huh. and all my crew calls me Dollar. And uh, when my son joined the crew, they started calling him 50 Cent. <laughs> <laughs> Bet he loved that. Well, uh, he took it on the chin, and uh, now he's a policeman uh, for the Madison Police Force. <clears throat> and he related this story to uh, one of his police buddies, and it got passed up the chain, and they started calling him 50 Cent at roll call. <laughs> And some rapper stole his his name. Yeah, right. And now I think that rapper's dead. I think he passed. Did he pass? I think. I don't know. I'm not here to. I know heavy D. Authority. I know heavy D just 50 passed. Cent was a well known uh, hip hop rap artist. May still be. We don't know. You know, BB only recorded one rap song in his life, and it was with Heavy D. Hmm. And it was called Lucille. Ah, he sampled it, and and uh, it was. Uh, I wish I could remember the words off the top of it. <laughs> Lucille, can I get a date? <laughs> uh, and uh, but anyway, it it was extra special because my son got to travel with me, and um, we, uh, you know, it's just really a journey of a lifetime for me right. to document his life and. Um, the the finished films in the museum are an hour long of mm-hmm. total length. Right. And we have enough film uh, to do 10 one-hour shows on wow. B.B.'s life. And how yeah. old is B.B. now? B.B. Yeah. is 85. 85. Still playing. Still playing. On the road. He's... Uh, He's having a little trouble here and there now with, uh, you know, anybody gets up to 85 and has lived a life uh, that he has, uh, you know, he's got a little dementia going on, but but he's still out there on the road. Yeah. I'm Malcolm White. You're listening to a conversation that I had in 2012 with legendary Mississippi filmmaker Jim Dollarhide, who died in a house fire in March of 2016. Hi, I'm Malcolm White. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. For access to more conversations with creative Mississippians, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app.
Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. I'm Malcolm White, and you're listening to my 2012 interview with my great friend, Mississippi filmmaker Jim Dollarhide who tragically was killed in a house fire in 2016. To start this final part of the conversation, I asked Jim about the art of photography. Uh, I started in the darkroom, Mm -hmm. and that is very much a craft, uh, or it was. It's it's a vanishing craft. Right. Digital now. But um, photographic silver-based printmaking was a, uh, certainly, you had to learn the craft. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, that's, as I mentioned, that's where you, the dark room was where I learned more about composition than actually looking through the camera, Mm -hmm. uh, because there was this tactile experience of moving that easel around and changing the composition. And, um, it's not like being, working with Photoshop in a mouse. It was different. Mm -hmm. It was, you touched it. Right. And, um. I remember um, in the early 70s when I was uh, still uh, kind of a wannabe, uh, my very first mentor in cinematography uh, was a real Hollywood cameraman uh, who lived in Jackson. His name was Jim Lucas. Hmm. And uh, Jim was uh, what is referred to uh, in the uh, Hollywood speak as uh, an A-camera operator. Um, and he had come up through the union, which back then, if you want, if you wanted to work on real movies, you had to go through the union and you had to learn the craft. Uh, and I had, I had said something to Jim about the art of cinematography. And, um, he, um, he looked at me and he said, Jim, you know, um, before you talk about the art of cinematography, you have to learn the craft. <laughs> and then he kind of wryly smiled and said, and learning the craft takes a lifetime. And it that uh, thing that he told me is so true today with in the digital world. Anyone can pick up a digital camera, be it a high-definition camcorder or a still camera and instantly become a videographer, filmmaker, or photographer. And you don't have to learn the craft. Hmm. Um, Because of the technology. Because the technology has made uh, accessing the craft so easy. Mm -hmm. But if you really want uh, to – if you want art – to come out of your craft, uh, you have to learn the craft. <laughs> it's just, it amazes me the number of people who hang out a shingle in as a, a film or video production company who have no clue about light and shadow, form and texture, composition, you know, basic elements. The elements, yeah. Um, 
and that's just part of the digital age, you know. It's just uh, that's um, you know, there's tremendous strides have been made in in technology, but along with it have um, you know, there's there's some flaws in in how it affects the the art world and uh, I, the. Uh, Chris Porter, uh, who uh, many listeners will know as H.C. Porter, right? Uh, she and I both started in the dark room. Uh, you know, turned out she picked up a paintbrush uh, and combined that with her still camera. Mm-hmm. I picked up a still camera and then combined that with a movie camera. Uh, but she, we we share a lot in common, and uh, uh, I heard hers. Uh, Arts Hour story, and uh, so I, I know that she and I share a lot of uh, uh, familiar things mm-hmm. about art and craft. So, talk a little bit about how you work today. It's it's twenty twelve. All this technology that you just mentioned is in place, but yet you're still. You're working in the field. I mean, you still got your shingle out there. You're still working. Are you combining uh, the old with the new, or are you just using the new technology and being artful about it? Well, in the uh, late 70s, uh, video porta packs uh, became available in the uh, professional world. Uh-huh. And for the first time, you could easily take a video camera out on location and shoot video, uh, which today we would call originating on video. Uh-huh. And I turned my nose up at it for the longest time. And finally, in the uh, 80s, uh, I had a, a large company at that time called Took Image you a decade <laughs> yeah. to get comfortable with it. I never got comfortable with it. No, okay. Oh, no okay. I didn't say that. Okay. Uh, I had a company, and I had 15 employees, and I needed to feed those employees. Yeah. So we embraced the video world, but I still didn't work in it. Right. Uh, my my employees worked in it, uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I stuck to. I wanted to feel and hear in my ear the vibrations of that motion picture camera turning and film going through the aperture. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it, it wasn't until I started BB's project that. Um, I drug myself kicking and screaming <laughs> into the digital world. And uh, I quickly embraced it. Uh-huh. Uh, we decided immediately that because we were going to interview so many people in so many places and the interviews would be so lengthy that it, was, it would just be impossible to shoot it on motion picture film because of the prohib- prohibitive cost. You're right. Um, you know, um, at... 10 minutes of motion picture film to process it and transfer it to digital medium and color correct it uh, costs maybe four hundred, five $500. 30 minutes of digital videotape costs $19. Goodness. And now it's changed to where we're using, we're originating to digital files and you, you use the same cards and over and over, and you archive them to hard drives. All right. But but I did. I went kicking and screaming. But one, um, 
I went to New York, uh, and I went to one of the leading rental companies that I do business with. And this is in um, uh, late 2004. And I, they set up every digital camera, or at that time, which we what we called HD cameras, mm-hmm. and allowed me to test them side by side. Uh, and I, I picked one particular format, and um, but what I immediately embraced about it was that you had the, these beautiful. Um, I have a nine inch, a seventeen inch, and a twenty three inch monitor. They're LCDs mm-hmm. uh, made by Panasonic, and they're um, it's uh, it's like the Apple saying, "WYSIWYG." What you see is what you get. Mm-hmm. So now, uh, in in motion picture days, only the cinematographer had any clue about what the image was going to look like. Um, it was not going to look like it looked to your eye. Right. Uh, but now, with digital acquisition is what we call it. Uh, it typically is in high definition. Uh, you look at the monitor, and what you see is what you're getting. Mm-hmm. Precisely, and as a a filmmaker who had my my start was in photography, and the basis of my life's work was on motion picture film. Um, being able to see exactly what I was getting freed me from having to go through the mental process of making determinations about what it's going to look like. Ah, as you went along. Because, you know, you, uh, I, I love to make documentaries, and I would do that for the rest of my life and nothing else, uh, particularly if they were made in, about Mississippi stories. Right. <laughs> uh, but I have to make a living. Sure. Uh, so I make uh, high-end or high-quality television commercials, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to make a living. And... You know, uh, now, back then, the ad agency folks would sit around and they they wouldn't have a clue what you were doing. <laughs> you uh, just deliver some product and say, here it is. Yeah, we'd go shoot it. And the first time they'd see it was when the film came back. <laughs> uh, and now they, they would. Now they're your partners in, in editing. Now they would not think of going on a set without having monitors for, you know, big right. monitors for them to sit and look at. Right, right. And that's just you know part of the uh, change in technology. It's changed every facet of how we work. And you and I just worked on a project uh, with Mississippi Development Authority and the Mississippi Arts Commission on the creative economy. And you shot three beautiful short documentaries sort of helping us explain what on earth the creative economy is. And, and I must tell you I have uh, very much appreciated your craft and your art when I stand before 200 people and try to explain what the creative economy is, when I have these films to back me up, it, it, it is, it's a whole different uh, a way of, of explanation. You know, I can, I can refer to the study. I can deliver charts. I can talk about comparisons. Do a PowerPoint. But all I have to do is roll one of those short docs, and everybody in the room knows gets what it, the creative gets economy it, yeah. is. Well, you know, you're the star of a well, couple of them, so, of them, but, yeah. But, but anyway, that was uh, – so that's sort of what you do for a living these days? Is, is that type short filmmaking? I, uh, most um, 
most of my work is what you would call sponsored filmmaking. Uh-huh. Uh, I got you. I, this past year, I did several uh, uh, sponsored films for St. Dominic's Hospital. Uh, I did a pro bono project for uh, Metro Jackson Habitat for Humanity. Right. Um, and, and then I, I also still make uh, a cur- uh, commercials occasionally. And where is the body of work? Where can the public go on the Internet and see your films and see your work and, and explore uh, they what can, you do? They can uh, go to Facebook and uh, uh, just type in and search my name. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can choose to friend me or not, but all of my uh, photographs, which are mostly uh, snapshots of my kids and working, <laughs> um, and, but uh, I have a lot of my short films on my Facebook page, and they're all open to the public. So just type in Jim Dollarhide, and I think and I'm the top hit. Yeah, you're there. Okay, great. Okay, one last uh, topic I'd like to discuss is, is sort of uh, where you live and and what your passion is for fishing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my passion for fishing is eating it. <laughs> Tell us about that. Uh, I just you uh, love the bass, do you? I do love bass fishing, uh, and uh, perhaps more than that. Uh, I, by the way, I, to answer your question, I live at Lake Cavalier, mm-hmm. which I fondly refer to as fabulous Lake Cavalier. And you've been there for a while. I've been there since nineteen ninety. Ninety-three through ninety-seven, I was part-time, and I've been there full-time since ninety-seven. Okay, living on the lake. And um, from ninety-seven till around two thousand five, I had I was lucky enough to have the penthouse in the Lamar Life Building, mm-hmm. uh, the little room under the clock tower, right. where Eudora Welty worked as a copywriter for WJDX AM when they became Mississippi's first radio station. Wow. Uh, very historic, uh, but I, I live at Lake Cavalier. In 2005, I built a larger home, and my uh, office and my editing studio are in my home, and uh, that's where I'll spend the rest of my days. I'm Malcolm White. Thanks for listening to my 2012 interview with legendary Mississippi filmmaker Jim Dollarhide, who we lost in a house fire in the March of 2016. Hi, I'm Malcolm White. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. For access to more conversations with creative Mississippians, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app.